0: Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. I'm your host, Corey Horn. In 63 BCE, the Romans conquered Judea. For thousands of years, the main source we had for this time period were the writings of the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, This all changed in 1947 with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. Some of these religious texts helped shed a new light on the events of this period.
1: The scrolls discovered around Qumran are unique from many other manuscript discoveries from
0: antiquity. This is Dr. Oren Abelman, an expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls focusing specifically on the Romans in the Dead Sea Scrolls. He also works with the Israel Antiquities Authority in the Dead Sea Scrolls unit. A woman is looking at Jewish texts that were written in the early Roman period of Jewish history and also Roman texts to find similarities and differences between them.
1: There's a lot of arguments about how exactly to understand this collection of scrolls. What I'm about to present, it could be the majority opinion, but the scrolls were a collection of all religious texts. You can see significant differences of perspective of the Romans on the one hand being the dominant political power Of the region, and on the other hand, the Jewish texts representing some of the only texts we have from one of the subjugated nations in the Roman Empire.
0: There's a larger question in Roman history about how did these various people the Romans conquered actually feel about the Romans? And in this case of the Jews, we have the one and only case where we have actual texts written by subjugated people about what they thought about the Romans
1: a third of the scrolls are what we call biblical te- texts or copies of books that now appear in the Hebrew Bible another category is what we would call basic religious texts from the second temple period the third group is what's called the sectarian texts and these are texts that are were written by a specific group that is the group that lived at the site of Qumran and is the group that collected these texts.
0: These sectarian texts have kind of a unique terminology and worldview. These differentiate this group from any other within the Jewish world of that time. We can see that this was a relatively small group. This group sees themselves as a persecuted minority with fantasies of grandeur. They imagined that the outsiders were going to realize that this group were the ones that were correct and had the truth. And eventually, they would realize this and follow their ways, and then they were going to be punishing their enemies, who were the sinners.
1: One of the famous sectarian scrolls that I worked on was called the the Scroll of the War of the Sons of Light and the Sons of Darkness. And the members of this sect saw themselves as the Sons of Light, as the only people who were truly righteous, and everyone else in the world was categorized as the Sons of Darkness. They believed that one day they were going to fight against these Sons of Darkness for control over the
0: world. So who was this group? Where did they come from? Well, there's a lot of arguments in scholarship about how to identify them. One of the dominant theories in identification is a thought that this is a group called the ASEANs. The group is also mentioned in other sources, mainly in the writings of the Jewish historian Josephus and the Jewish Egyptian philosopher Philo of Alexandria.
1: This might be true, but in my opinion, we just don't have enough evidence to be sure that the group that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, if it was or wasn't the ASEANs. It's also clear now in scholarship that we should be talking about different groups and different sort of subsects that coexisted with each other.
0: It's impossible to completely reconstruct what the group dynamic was here. There were certain splits that happened among them, which is very common throughout history. But it also seems at certain points that there were different groups that combined with each other.
1: Some of these scrolls were written by a specific subgroup that followed a elusive figure that we don't know much about, but is mentioned in the scrolls by the title Teacher of Righteousness. He is credited as the founder. ...of this movement. In other texts, it's actually presented as if he's in the movement um, at, at a slightly later point after its first foundation. But it was obvious that this person was a very influential religious leader of this group.
0: Part of the group saw this figure as the main authority on anything that had to do with interpretation of the Bible, their way of living, and even predicting the future. The main world view of this group is that they were living in end times. They fully believed that the end war was to be fought by the sons of light against the whole of evil and truly believed it was going to happen in their lifetime.
1: There are different arguments about when exactly this group started. I actually have argued for a relatively late date compared to most scholars. The dominant theory is that this group emerged in the mid-2nd century BCE, I've actually argued against this, against this, that actually this group probably emerged in the early 1st century BCE, and it really gained momentum, though, only towards the mid-1st century BCE.
0: This starts the period when Judea comes under Roman control. From the mid-2nd century BCE till before the middle of the 1st century BCE, Judea was independent. The Hasmonean dynasty gained independence from the Greek Seleucid Empire, and for a while, there was an autonomous Jewish rule in Judea.
1: This all changed very abruptly in 63 BCE, when the Roman general Pompey reached the area and conquered Judea. And it should also be said, his conquest of Judea was kind of the last move of a rather large-scale campaign by the Romans, where they basically took over Most of the Near East, modern-day Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and Israel.
0: At this time, you had these Hellenistic kingdoms who were mostly heirs of Alexander the Great. Then all of a sudden, abruptly, you have the Romans come in and take over a majority of the territory. Simultaneously, the Parthian Empire, a Persian group from the East, emerges. They ended up taking over what's most of the eastern part of what now we consider the Middle East. Mesopotamia. This created a border between Rome and Persia that lasted for over 600 years.
1: At the same time, Rome itself underwent a, a, the most, its most major political shift. The Roman general that conquered Judea was Pompey, and he was one of these uh, strongmen of Rome. And not many years after his conquest of Judea, he came into conflict with one of the other Strong men of Rome, Julius Caesar.
0: This is now the period of the civil wars in Rome. What's interesting is that these wars were also fought all throughout the Roman Empire, and Judea was part of a much larger story. At the end of the Roman Civil War, Rome was a republic in practice, but became what they called a principate, founded by Augustus. But now, in practice, it was actually a hereditary monarchy. Augustus's
1: a takeover of power in 30 BC is where I see the end point of the period I'm researching. Most of the texts that I'm dealing with from the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think, were written before that point or not very long after that point. And that is because Augustus' victory was a major shift politically in what was going on.
0: The focus of studying these scrolls is to better understand the processes that led to these events. It's important to understand how these world-shifting events were perceived by the Jews that were not necessarily part of the central story. One of the crucial pieces we have regarding the information on this development is the internal struggle of the Hasmoneans, a strong dynasty that ruled Judea for a few generations and expanded its borders.
1: When the Romans first came to Judea, they were going through an internal dynastic struggle. Two brothers claimed the throne. This wasn't just the royal throne, the ruler of Judea was also the high priest of the Jerusalem temple, which meant that whoever ruled Judea was also the official head of the Jewish religion.
0: These two brothers were Hyrcanus II and Aristobulus II. The Romans saw this as a way to efficiently control the area that they had just conquered. They needed proxy rulers from local communities to control them making sure they don't rebel too much, taxes are collected, and most importantly, that when the Romans campaign against their enemies, they're going to get the support in the form of troops and supplies.
1: The Roman general Pompey eventually came to support Hyrcanus II to be the, the Romans' proxy ruler of Judea. And as part of that, he also started fighting against Aristobulus II. And when the supporters of Aristobulus II barricaded themselves in the Jerusalem temple, had a rather traumatic scene happen, played out in the city of Jerusalem.
0: The city of Jerusalem itself was opened up for the Romans by the supporters of Hyrcanus II. However, the temple inside was the most fortified position within the city, and it was held by the other faction of Jews that supported the II.
1: The Romans eventually broke into the temple, killed priests in the temple while they were performing The daily rituals of the temple and Pompey himself, uh, together with members of his his staff, actually entered the Holy of Holies, which was a place that only the high priest on uh, the Day of Atonement once a year was supposed to enter.
0: This event would have been perceived by most Jews as a major desecration of the temple. Abelman also believes this shaped the way Jews viewed Romans from the very first moment they came under Roman control. In addition to the Dead Sea Scrolls, there is one other text believed to be from this time period that provides a more in-depth look into the aftermath of this takeover.
1: The Psalms of Solomon, I think, were written by someone who lived in Jerusalem and experienced the Roman conquest of the city firsthand. And you get some of that account in this psalm, of what it was like for the Romans to break in. And you also have references here specifically to this Roman general Pompey.
0: These texts refer to Pompey as an arrogant dragon. What is interesting is that they focus on the individual as an extension beyond the general Roman population.
1: This is something interesting also to compare with the Dead Sea Scrolls because the Dead Sea Scrolls, specifically about the text of Pesha Chavakuk, also addresses the same exact event, and you see both similarities and differences. And some of these are obviously because they are, they are different authors, but it's also an issue of which group wrote the text.
0: The scrolls from Qumran were written by a unique sect. And on the other hand, the Psalm of Solomon was written by a different sect, one that had a completely different worldview about specific issues.
1: The people who wrote the Qumran scrolls seem to have a priestly orientation. Priests are their leaders, and there seem to be certain preoccupation with extreme views on how to keep up purity laws. In the Psalms of Solomon, you see that the people who wrote them were actually not very impressed with the priests.
0: You also see a Jewish view here that is far more critical about the Hasmoneans than what you would find in the Qumran scrolls. It's interesting to compare these two because they both come from two small minority groups that equally hate the Romans and are looking forward to the downfall of the empire. What's curious is how they both understand the downfall in different ways.
1: In the Quran texts, you have a rather violent vision of how the Romans are going to fall. There's this talks about this war against the Romans and how the Romans are going to be going to be defeated by the Messiah but also in an act of war by members of the sect that wrote these scrolls.
0: In contrast, in the Psalms of Solomon, there is a hope for the appearance of a figure known as the Messiah. With a clear pacifist type of view, the idea is that the Messiah will convince everyone to stop fighting and only promote peace. This stands in great contrast to the wars that are happening in this time period, and this yearning for peace makes its way even into Roman literature of the time. There was
1: this yearning for peace, and you see that both in the Jewish texts and the Roman text. And the interesting thing is that eventually Augustus capitalizes on this yearning for peace by presenting his victory as the bringing of this peace.
0: Starting from 63 BCE, there were always problems between Jews and Romans. There were Jews who felt no problem living under the Roman Empire, but there was always a persistent group of Jews who did not want to live under the Roman Empire and that rebelled or resisted the Roman Empire in a variety of ways. Sometimes this was an open rebellion, acts of robbery. We also hear about groups who left. They went to regions of the Dead Sea near the Judean desert and lived there far away from the center of Roman rule.
1: It led over time to, there were various different rebellions, but the biggest one broke out in 66 CE. And for a few years, Judea was not part of the Roman Empire. And the Romans eventually put down this rebellion very violently. But they also had to do with internal Roman reasons, and there is a correspondence between what happens in the Roman Empire and how it affects the Jews. Because a new dynasty took power in Rome, the Flavian dynasty, they needed a victory.
0: And who was this convenient enemy? It was the Jews. They needed someone that they could present as if they had saved the Roman Empire from. So they put down the rebellion more harshly than they would have otherwise. And as part of that, they destroyed the Temple of Jerusalem.
1: This is the most traumatic event in Jewish history up to the Holocaust. Till this very day, almost 2,000 years later, this is still considered by many to be the most major disaster that ever happened to the Jewish people. Only the Holocaust in certain ways has eclipsed that disaster for certain people and not even for everyone, I think.
0: Abelman continues his research with the reactions to 70 CE and what it caused. There are similar reactions to what was seen in 63 BCE when the Romans desecrated the temple, but didn't destroy it. We do see similar language being deployed in the texts, but also a very observable, long-lasting trauma. Fourth
1: Ezra and second bubble for or Syriac bubble. They're different texts. They're obviously written by different authors, but the worldview that you see in them is similar. You have the Apocalypse of Abraham, which was also written in that same period of time, probably from a slightly different type of group of Jews. So there, there's a lot in these texts that doesn't have anything to do with the Romans. But what interests me in these texts is, is you see this complete rejection of the Roman Empire and a complete rejection of the current political system as inherently corrupt, inherently evil. That living under the Roman Empire is perceived as living in a state of constant disaster, all of these texts look forward to an end time that the authors thought was going to be in the not-too-distant future uh, from when they were writing, where the Roman Empire would be destroyed.
0: And for Ezra, the figure called the Messiah is going to judge the Roman Emperor, and through that, destroy the empire. The event is thought to bring about a utopian period, and it's as if the very fall of Rome is what is going to make everything all right. The idea is that the Jews will no longer be under Roman rule. Therefore, the Jews will be okay, and everything's going to be great.
1: It's very interesting because the language to describe this kind of utopian future is the same exact language that the Roman emperors were using to describe their rule of Rome. They will say that what the empire is calling... A peaceful existence is actually subjugation, is actually a type of form of slavery. They will then envision a future in which this state of subjugation is finished and that true peace will actually be described in similar ways to the way the empire envisions its own reality.
0: One key thing scholars note as they dissect these texts is to make sure that they're read in the context of the time period. They shouldn't be interpreted in a manner that is paralleled by contemporary time.
1: Various people really might be living in, in a state of subjugation in one form or another. These ancient texts can sometimes also be empowering because this insistent loyalty to people's own identity is also what allowed them to survive the Roman Empire.
0: This strength and identity is what allowed the Jews to be one of the only ethnic and religious groups to survive this time. They didn't get mixed up into the crisis or perceived crisis that eventually became the Roman Empire. And this is what Abelman's research would like to leave you with.
1: If something is a crisis or not, it really is an issue of perspective. And understanding the group dynamics that situations of a crisis create, there will always be groups that will utilize that crisis to promote a certain agenda. That agenda might actually be legitimate. It depends depending on who, what you're thinking, or it can also be subverted into something rather extreme and dangerous.
0: You've been listening to Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer is Scott Spector. You can find and subscribe to Frankly Judaic anywhere you get podcasts. If you like the show, please leave a five-star review. Thanks for listening.